Hello everyone, this is Deborah Richardson and today I am putting the AP in Happy where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. This podcast will give a voice to accounts payable team members by talking about the growing reality of cyber attacks in their world and which vendor setup and vendor management techniques they can apply to protect the vendor master file from fraud. U.S. government vendors. So we know we don't have to submit 1099s for government vendors, but what does that really mean for the vendor setup process? And for that matter, how does the IRS define government vendors or government entities? And what is the fraud risk? So I'm going to answer all of that. And if you stay tuned through the end, I'm going to have a bonus best practice that I just thought about. So keep listening. Welcome to episode 127, three vendor onboarding best practices for U.S. government vendors. U.S. government entities typically have caveats when it comes to setting them up as a new vendor in your vendor master file. Now, to ensure the government entity is real, the information is valid, and to reduce the potential for fraud, Here is one, the definition of what the IRS considers a U.S. government entity, as well as three best practices for onboarding them into your vendor master file. And I say three, but there's really going to be four because I thought of one while we were or while I was uh, recording the intro. So you're going to get an extra one. So let's look at what entities are considered a government entity according to the IRS. Now the IRS defines government entities as federal and state governments that are established and recognized by the U.S. Constitution and state constitutions. They're also uh, federally recognized Indian tribal governments um, that are recognized by the U.S. Constitution, uh, treaties, statutes, and court decisions. Other entities may be recognized as governments by state law, court decision, or an examination of facts and circumstances that indicate it has the characteristics of a government such as powers of taxation, law enforcement, and civil authority. Now, I actually took that from the IRS website and I will put a link to where, uh, to the page that that's on. Um, That link will be in the accompanying blog post and the blog post will be uh, linked in the show notes. And by the way, the blog post will only have the three uh, best practices because I already wrote and set that up. And so again, once again, you get a lot more commentary um, when you listen to the podcast uh, versus only reading the blog. All right. So with that definition, that means that uh, U.S. government entities or vendors can include state government, um, local government and subdivisions, Indian tribal governments, uh, instrumentalities, which are considered um, organizations formed for public purposes like schools, 
hospitals, libraries, water departments, so your colleges and universities. And again, I will have a uh, link to the site that has more information on that. Now, you may be thinking the same thing I'm thinking, which was the same thing that I thought when I was a, a practitioner, an AP senior manager, is that it's not always easy to identify um, what is a government um, entity according to the IRS. Because remember, in the uh, definition, it can be based on court decisions uh, and how do you know or your um a new vendor team member, how do they know what is really considered a government entity? So keep that in mind as we talk about the three best practices or the four best practices. All right, so the first best practice, um, best practice number one, is to request a W-9. So U.S. government entities, yes, they are exempt from 1099 reporting. Um, so you may think that not requiring a W-9 is a given. The problem is, is that unless that government entity is a well-known entity, how do you know, or again, that new vendor team member that you just onboarded, how do they know that the vendor is an eligible government entity um, that is considered part of that eyeball test? Well, unless the entity is so well known and there is just no one to collect a W-9 from, um, request that W-9 because some government entities may even have tax IDs. And in, uh, in that way, the vendor team can then use it to verify that the vendor or the entity is real, that the vendor legal name is set up correctly, and also um, just verify that the address is valid, uh, the address on the W-9 that is valid. Best practice number two, if you don't receive a W-9, validate the information online. So if there is a U.S. government entity where there is no one to collect a W-9 from, I mean, you're not getting a W-9 from U.S. Treasury or the IRS or the Water Department, then validate the information online before setup or changes if you have a change, but how often does that information really change? But verify it online. Now a team member can go to the government entity's website to get the right vendor legal name as well as the right mailing address and or remit addresses take screenshots and attach them to the vendor record. And you can use those screenshots as supporting documentation since you don't have anything from the vendor. And by the way, if an employee outside of accounts payable requests a new vendor setup of a government uh, entity or agency, and you normally require a separate vendor setup form, require that for this vendor too. At least you will get the right information you require to set up a vendor in addition to other information that you've included on that vendor setup form because you need that uh, to complete the setup in your accounting system or ERP. Plus, you'll have additional information that you can validate against. And speaking of validations, let's hear from our sponsor of this podcast, Smarty Streets, about address validations. On this podcast, I talk a lot about avoiding bad vendor data, and that includes vendor addresses. A tool that I personally use to validate vendor addresses is Smarty Streets. 
Smarty Streets is an online tool that will let you not only standardize U.S. and non-U.S. addresses, but it also goes further to tell you if the address is vacant, inactive, or only a P.O. box. With individual and bulk lookups, make sure you use Smarty Streets to validate your vendor addresses. Check out smartystreet.com AP to get 250 free U.S. address checks today. All right, so let's move on to best practice number three. Send supporting documentation to accounts payable to mail with check. Now, yes, I know I said the taboo payment method check, uh, especially now. But the thing is, is that many government payments are for licenses, applications, etc. And that typically requires supporting documents to be submitted with the check. Now, as a result, accounts payable teams are asked to send the check to the requesting employee so that the requesting employee can attach the documents and then mail them all off as a package. In some cases, um, requesting that the employee location um, be added to the vendor record to send the check to, since that's easier than trying to pull the check special out of the pay run and send it off separately. However, this is where the potential for fraud can come in. Sending checks directly to internal employees versus directly um, sending the check to the vendor can increase fraud potential since there is no guarantee that the check will ultimately be sent to the payee. Now, there can even be a higher potential for fraud um, in this scenario if best practices number one and number two are not followed. So if you haven't validated that this is a real vendor by either collecting the W-9 and doing the validations or doing the validations uh, just online, um, if you haven't done that and then you turn around and send that check to the employee, there's really no guarantee that that's not a fraudulent uh, payment that you just sent out to, uh, to the internal employee. Now, my recommendation is that if supporting documents need to be sent with the check, have the employee who's requesting the check forward those documents to the accounts payable team who will then attach the check and mail it out with all the checks following internal controls for check handling because you know the employees are not going to do that either. So you want to make sure that information comes to accounts payable who whatever department, whatever team member is responsible for getting those checks out, have them attach the information and then send out the check along with those supporting documents. Now, it may not even be hard copies. It could be electronic versions that they can just email over. And so it'll be a little bit easier. But again, all that information needs to come out of accounts payable or the payments team and be sent just like all the other vendor checks to the vendors from that department. Now I know that that is a hard sell because I've been in a uh, situation before where um, did not have leadership support for that. And so um, we were not able to do it for a very long time. And so I, I do get where you're coming from if your leadership is not uh, keen on that idea, but keep trying. And as leadership changes, keep bringing it back up again. And especially if you see that there's fraud occurring, 
bring that back up again. And I, I don't even know how that's happening now with many accounts payable teams working from home. Uh, if, uh, if anyone wants to comment on the platform that you're using to listen or go on over to my site and comment on the blog, uh, that blog post will be a link in the, uh, in the show notes. Let me know how you guys are handling attachments or supporting documentation that needs to be sent with a check when you're working remotely, even if that means you have to go into the office one day a week to take care of that type of thing. Okay, so that was best practice number three. And now for the bonus best practice number four that I thought of as I was taping the the intro. And that is to inactivate government uh, vendors after no activity. Now, I do preach this a lot with all types of vendors, but especially with government vendors, because many of these government um, or these payments to these vendors or government entities are not recurring payments. Sometimes they're one-time payments, sometimes they're annual payments, sometimes they're payments every three years, depending on you know when they have to renew their license. And so having these vendors uh, active in your vendor master file means that they are susceptible to external and internal fraud, um, intentional and unintentional. If, if you've got extra vendors in there that you're not using, it's the possibility that somebody can click on that, uh, that vendor in an error, post an invoice to them. And so if um, you know that that vendor is only going to be used one time, that U.S. government vendor, uh, just like any other one-time vendor, go ahead and inactivate them after you've made the payment. And then you don't have to worry about um, uh, fraud for that vendor record. Now, if the vendor, there's a payment that is uh, uh, due every every year, an annual payment, you don't necessarily want to inactivate that payment or inactivate that vendor. Um, uh, so you want to make sure that when you do inactivate vendors that you have a uh, an activity period that is in excess of one year. Otherwise, every year you're going to have to create the same vendor. So you can you can make your inactive um, uh, inactivity threshold, you know, 15, 18, and some people do it 24 months. But if you're not going to use that vendor again for say um, three years, I would even say 18 months because uh, my ideal. Uh, activity period uh, based on my last two positions was always 18 months. And so uh, anyone that you're not going to use within the next 18 months, just go ahead and get them uh, uh, on the schedule to be inactivated within um, that time period. And again, less vendors, active vendors in your vendor master file, the less potential for fraud uh, for those vendor records. So with your government vendors, make sure you put them on the uh, inactivity um, rotation and then also make sure that if there are one-time payment, you capture that and inactivate that vendor right after the payment. Some systems have a will automatically inactivate them after a pay, uh, one payment if you mark them as a one-time vendor. Other systems, you have to uh, make the effort to go in and inactivate the vendor, but get that done, put them on the schedule uh, so that you can reduce fraud. Okay, so those were the three best practices I promised, plus a bonus best practice. So good luck with your government vendors. 
So thanks everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 127th episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast, where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy.